0: So tonight's reading is actually one of my favorites uh, it's found in uh, this particular passage is found in one of the uh, collections uh, called the Pali canon if you're not familiar with that term canon is a word that refers to canonical which means that it's the established or the accepted or Orthodox um, collection of scriptures um that term can also be used in other expressions also Uh, in science sometimes the idea of canonical means that uh certain things are always done the same way or you experience things the same way like our uh, when we we when we remember an object for example so let's say like I remember this um little wooden ringer for the Bell uh, we have a tendency to remember it uh, from the side or above so that's called a canonical point of view so <clears throat> canon is usually established uh, as a way to sort of kind of clarify what you believe are actual teachings of of the of the Dharma or those that aren't um, the problem with canon is is that there's always um, some group that maybe had, uh references that your group doesn't have and sometimes you know humans get into the game of well this is the real these are the real sayings of the buddha you'll be happy to know the dragonfly sangha we are not a people of the book while we uh we deeply honor and respect the writings that are found throughout the millennia uh, from the buddhist tradition Uh, for us this is a living practice that is based on Those practices which have been handed down from generation to generation. So you also find that this particular passage has parallels in other sutras. Uh, So, for example, sutras, uh, the one sutra called the Diamond Sutra, which interestingly, the Diamond Sutra is the oldest published book. It was the first published book. Uh, it was published on wooden blocks, and it was the first uh, one to be published. So it, it's, it predates the, um, <clears throat> what's the name of the Bible that was, one uh, uh, well, no, the first published, the Gutenberg Bible, yeah, predates it by quite a bit. I think the Diamond Sutra came out around <clears throat> the ninth century of the Common Era, so it's pretty early. At least as far as we know, that's the first book. And also the Shurangama Sutra. So the Diamond Sutra and the Shurangama Sutra also sort of reflect the idea that's being expressed here uh, by Shakyamuni Buddha. And I'm going to get into this text by talking about it in two ways. And this is something you should know that it's always done with sacred texts and it could be really done with any kind of text and and that is there is exegesis and eisegesis exegesis is when you you go back and look at a document or you look you know like these writings and you say okay when was it written who was it written for and what was the purpose of it so it's very much seeing the text as a product of its time and place and then eisegesis is where you look at a text and you draw something out of it that may not even have been originally considered when it was first said or written but now it has a meaning today uh, that is also very rich so with both of these approaches <clears throat> excuse me are are definitely uh, legitimate ways to do things but you're definitely going to have a different slightly different uh, maybe meaning or emphasis. I would say emphasis more than meaning. Now this sutra, uh, the sutra, the Magandiya Sutra, really was about, Magan, Magandiya was actually a non-practitioner who uh, was a hedonist and came to the Buddha and was going to challenge him uh, when the Buddha was residing, I think, in Kuru. And uh, basically, it's a dialogue between uh, Shakyamuni Buddha and and this fellow. And at the end, this fellow is uh, convinced of Shakyamuni's wisdom. And Magandiya uh, joins the order. He goes through a few months probation. And he's fully ordained because of his advanced understanding. But he was a hedonist. And so he came to Shakyamuni because he was like... Who's this guy saying that the pleasures of the flesh are bad? You know, what's wrong with that, man? Just eat, drink, and be merry. And he's expecting the Buddha to sort of go at it like, you know, you, you these things are forbidden or you shouldn't do these things. And, of course, he doesn't. And he uh, uses some very colorful illustrations, <laughs> which include leprosy and, and, and other uh, afflictions, to basically say to uh magandiya that it's not that there's anything wrong with these things it's just these things do not bring fulfillment and they do not bring abiding peace and so uh the Buddha takes in this description he takes a bit of a uh I would say a middle way approach to things and says that you know we shouldn't get too attached or too absorbed by material things or or things of sensual pleasures or senses whether it be eating sex etc because those things ultimately won't satisfy us in terms of our true nature Um, as i've said many places many times um, it's not about the things themselves being bad or even wanting those things or desiring them it's just that we have our desire for those things usually gets mixed up with what they'll actually give us or what they actually mean so if we can if we can want something without being overly attached or attaching some ultimate meaning to it that it can't possibly carry then there's nothing wrong with anything in and of itself it's it's the mind state that we bring to the object whatever that might be so that's kind of where the focus goes uh in that original text and it's like I said it's kind of interesting um uh, it's not very long it's fairly short and you could read it there are different translations you could read some of these especially polycanon uh texts you could read them in a somewhat a um somewhat of a monastic bias um and there's no doubt in my mind and I don't have time to go into all that here but there's no doubt in my time or my my opinion that a lot of these writings are written from the perspective of wherever you happen to be and a lot of these texts were composed under ashoka great emperor buddhist emperor and so uh, at that time the form of buddhism that was most popular was more of the monastic you know living in cloistered uh, groups together which wasn't the way it was an original at least as far as we know story of Shakibuni, they didn't live together in community they would gather during the raining season but other than that they didn't but we're talking about centuries later there's the establishment of an official monastic community or the community of the ordained who have to be monastic in this case so that it tends to have a slant <laughs> when you read some of the same Teachings as I will give you some uh, from the Diamond Sutra and the Shurangama Sutra those sutras are coming from uh, what traditionally is called the great vehicle approach whereas the uh, the monastics are called the, the smaller vehicle they're not called that by themselves the, the bigger vehicle people call them the smaller. vehicle so the opinion is is that they're they're too narrow in their interpretation of what Shakyamuni said and this and and so I want to get into the the text itself because that's what's most important tonight but I want to let you know that up front that I'm not we are we don't believe in these sutras that they're the the inerrant or infallible words of Shakyamuni or anybody else we believe these are inspired documents that often contain a great deal of wisdom but i have absolutely no problem completely and i've never had that completely but disagreeing with something that i might find in the sutra that doesn't fit with my own knowledge and understanding interestingly that's what we're admonished to do as good buddhists because in the kalama sutra the buddha is recorded as saying you shouldn't believe something just because it's found in a holy book that you should test it for yourselves so I just want to make sure you guys understand that. If you go reading the sutras uh, on your own, just understand that sometimes you'll find things there that you might not agree with. And that might mean, A, you don't understand it. Or B, it just doesn't fit with your experience. And that's fine. Okay, so let's go back to our, our passage, because this is one of my favorite sayings uh, attributed to Shakyamuni those who cling to perceptions and views wander the world offending people <laughs> i think that should be pretty easy for us to relate to particularly in the social media world right what is social media but you know the gossip uh, circle uh, expanded uh, somewhat seemingly infinitely at times and you know people have all their perceptions and their views and they go wandering around offending people (laughs) and i think that's probably experience you've all had and uh so i just want to talk a little bit about the meaning of this passage now in order to really do that effectively i believe you always before you talk about anything you have to define your terms so this passage is interesting because the terms in here if we look at the etymology which etymology is from an old greek word that means true meaning or original meaning if we look at the etymology of some of these words it's quite revealing so i'm going to do that breaking each each line down so when buddha says those what does that mean well first of all those refers to it could be that were beheld that beheld or those who beheld they beheld or that beheld and it's a neutral term in terms of language language often has masculine or feminine um, sort of orientation meaning but in this case it's neutral and it means those who are beholding those who have beheld who those who what does who mean? And this is interesting because the, the in, in the Germanic origins of this word, who, it's, it's also uh, the word or the letters, the prefix W-E-R, were. And not like we think of were. But it's the idea of something that is joined together. So if you're a fan of horror movies and monster films like I am, there's the werewolf W-E-R-W-L-O-F. so what is where mean it means human it means human it means a particular type of being and in this case it means a human being and it has a masculine sort of energy around that word and so there you go those are first three those who those who that that is It is those who are beholding something and they are joining with this in a way that is is very strong. And then we have the word cling. So those who cling. So what's the meaning of the word cling? What's interesting, the, the old English for the word cling is shrivel. Shrivel and also to wrinkle or to shrink something. So if we just take that first part, those who cling, what we're saying is, is that this particular view, this particular way of joining together an idea or a way of seeing things, this particular way, Wrinkles stuff it shrinks things it causes them to shrivel so this particular passage starts out by saying those are the those are they who are causing things to be wrinkled shriveled and shrunk So this is a view that's not life-giving. This is a view that is not smooth. This is a view that is wrinkled and causes shriveling and shrinking. Perceptions. What does the word perception mean? Those who cling to perceptions. So the word perception, when you go back to the etymology of it, it means to see, see through something. It means to see through something. And it has a sort of a masculine energy, and it's the idea of seizing something. So, a perception is not sort of passive, but, but more, it's, it's more assertive, one might say. And what you're doing is you're, you're seizing something to see through it. So, those who uh, cling to perceptions, uh, it says that basically the way they're seizing upon things and grabbing them is in a way that is causing things to shrivel and shrink so this gives us a particular understanding because you can say these words generally right but the meaning here is that those are folks who are are you know kind of shrinking or shriveling whatever it is that they've seized so the, the view or this, the perception they have, it, it, it causes it not to blossom and open up, but to shrink in its meaning. Then we have views, those who cling to perceptions and views. What is view here? Well, view here means appearance, but it has more of like, whereas perception is to kind of seize things this is more uh stepping back it has a a more feminine sort of energy around it as a word and it it is to see the distance so so what it's saying here is that these this perception and view not only causes problems you know close up but even far away not only in its aggressive assertiveness but in, in its its receptiveness so it's it's setting us up pretty quickly here to show us that this is not good. <laughs> this is not good and then it says those who cling to perceptions and views wander and what does wander mean? Well, I like the word wander um I have to confess I put a positive spin on it, you know, and there's those uh uh, euphemisms like not all who wander are or wander who are lost and sometimes I like wandering and getting lost but here in this case it means to make a mistake <laughs> Wander its etymology originally was to make a mistake and it means and this is where I might come back to a more positive spin it also can be a reference to the wind so it means to be blown about by whatever is going on now if you put those all together those who cling to perceptions and views wander it's basically saying that when when you're doing that to a view uh, or a perception when you when you're when you're doing that you're shrinking the meaning you're shrinking what it really says and you're 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 lost and you're like the wind you kind of are blown by every opinion that comes down the pipe and or or the majority opinion that people offer and that kind of you know blows you in a certain direction those who claim to perceptions and views wander the world and what is the world uh, in a reference to here the world here uh, in the in even the etymology of the word world it refers to the idea of the age of man the age of humans and again it has that it has that w were were slash man and so it's 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 got that meaning to it world and it's the idea that this is referring to a particular age that this is not necessarily the destiny of humans but this is what is of the age so again it's saying that if we have views and we have perceptions and views that are small or they're causing just things to shrivel that we do this because we're blown about by opinions here and there and we are totally caught up in the particular zeitgeist of whatever time period we're in and so up to this point, which Shakyamuni is trying to say in these very simple lines, is that these are views and perceptions that don't belong to the wisdom of eternity or the wisdom of the ages. This is a view and perception that belongs to a particular time and place. And this particular view and perception does not bring life, but rather causes it to shrink and shrink. Now, it also says those who cling to perceptions and views wander the world offending people. Now, what does it mean to offend? So, offend means to strike. So, when, when you're offended, <clears throat> and I have to tell you, this always reminds me of the when my son was little, we used to watch Winnie the Pooh a lot, and uh, there was an episode of Tigger, and my, my nickname to my uh, grandchildren and to my nieces and nephews and stuff, is Uncle Tigger, that uh, he was the masked offender. <laughs> so, I if I see the word offender, I always think of Tigger with his, his uh, Zorro mask on and being the masked offender, causing lots of trouble. But it means to strike. And this strike causes something particular. It, it causes resentment. So to offend in this sense is to strike someone in a way that causes the other person to resent, be resentful. And it also sometimes is used as a, as a uh, points to the word sin. And that word uh, in the Greek, hamartia, it literally means to miss the mark. So what it's saying is, is that whenever you offend someone, you haven't reached them, you haven't touched them, you've missed them, and you've done so in a way that they find resentful. And finally, those who cling to perceptions and views wander the world offending people. What's the word people here mean? In this case, again, is talking about humanity, but in a very particular way. It's a sense of inhabiting something or it can also be a reference to the word persona and so what does that mean well it's not talking about our true self but it's talking about our ego self so when we put this all together using our etymological sort of code what it means is that those those who cling to perceptions and views that are you know opinions that are based on a particular period and not necessarily wisdom for all time and and they're you know they're blown about by this opinion that opinion you know uh, i love how people today say well if a lot of people have the same opinion then it must be so it reminds me of kipling's jungle book where if the apes all yell at once then they say it must be something they said there's a line like that uh, they it must be so if we say it is so it must be so these people are this these people and that could be us That we're we're kind of in that group and we clean these perceptions and views and then we we take them and then we go about You know sort of Willy-nilly um, Striking out and causing resentment and not really not really reaching people so here's how i understand that when we cling to perceptions and views particularly perceptions and views that do not represent wisdom that transcends our particular period because every period thinks it's it's got the most but the problem is each period is limited by the um, level of consciousness and awareness that was going on uh, it's influenced by the particular economic and political things going on and so we're we're What the buddha saying is don't cling to those views and perceptions because when you do that the energy behind that is you have a tendency to think that you're right and everybody else is wrong and then you tend to go around instead of connecting with people instead of you know helping to bring about oneness you do it in such a way that it just makes people feel more separate from each other and so the Buddha is advising that we don't we don't be like that (laughs) he's not saying there aren't perceptions and views that are helpful he's just saying that these particular views are not they cause us to divide things into dualities the good guys and the bad guys they they cause us to sort of think that the age we're living in is the most important age and and they tend to not be focused on wisdom that transcends a particular period of time and I think that's something we could all contemplate and perhaps work at now as I said to you before there's there's a uh, in the Diamond Sutra and the Shurangama Sutra, there's also references that are very similar to this. And I just want to share those real quick with you. And again, we're, we're diving into the text here. So in the Diamond Sutra, here's a passage that parallels uh, what we found in, in the um, Magandhya Sutra. If the minds of these sentient beings cherish these notions cherish these notions then they will cling to a self a person a sentient being in a lifespan if they cherish the no- notion of dharmas they will cling to a self a person a sentient being in a lifespan why if they cherish the notion of non-dharmas they will cling to a self a person a sentient being in a lifespan Therefore, one should not cherish dharmas or non-dharmas. For this reason, the Tathagata often teaches, this is the big line, know that my dharma is like a raft. So what he's saying here is, is that if we're clinging to views that limit our sense of self, which, you know just kind of further enforce the idea that we're these separate little ego skin bags and we're alone in this cold, dangerous universe, and we're not really one, then then we suffer. And whatever teachings we use to help us to be liberated from that view, to wake up to the oneness of all life and begin to live out of that, that we should understand that these techniques and practices are skillful means that we're not supposed to reify or turn into idols any teaching so the buddha is saying we can't use concepts and we can't use certain views and perceptions some of those views and perceptions may help liberate us and awaken to oneness but even those we should not turn into idols we should understand them to be skillful means And what what he's saying here is, know that my Dharma is like a raft. He's saying that basically it's something to get you from one place to another. That when you get to the other shore, you don't put the raft on your back and carry it around. So he's talking about the heuristic value of the Dharma. Which means that it is always able to adjust itself to wisdom. And insight and it is never clung to in some way that it becomes dogmatic now this is backed up then by the shurangama sutra and this one's really cool again it echoes them you see and that's how you kind of know that a teaching is probably something that was there from the beginning because you can see it echoed throughout the, the centuries <clears throat> reappearing but in different ways and yet sort of saying the same thing when the sun has just come up early on a clear fresh morning a morning after rain the sun shines through a crack in the door or perhaps a crack in the wall and it displays the fine bits of dust bobbing up and down in space moving all around in the sunshine if the sun doesn't shine in the crack you can't see the dust although there is actually a lot of dust everywhere but while the dust moves bobbing up and down space is still it doesn't move the ability to see the dust in the light that pours through the crack represents the attainment of the light of wisdom Now this is kind of the coda meaning here of what we've been talking about, which is saying that you know we don't want to cling to delusion. We don't want to cling to views that are deluded, right? Because they create suffering. They shrivel and shrink us. Don't allow us to grow. But it's also saying quite compassionately that even our delusions are a necessary part of our practice. Let me read the passage one more time and I'll highlight certain aspects. When the sun has just come in early on a fresh clear morning, a morning after rain, rain here represents delusions, which might be the views that we're clinging to, the perceptions that are not helping us. A morning after it's been raining, the sun shines and this shining sun here represents mindfulness. Through a crack. The sun shines through a crack, and the crack represents our suffering. Through a crack in the door, and this is the suffering that we experience when we enter into our delusions. Or perhaps a crack in a wall, and that represents when we stay in our delusions. And it displays the fine bits of dust. The fine bits of dust are, the, are called the cliches or our mental afflictions. Those are those thoughts and beliefs that are creating the suffering, causing the suffering. Bobbing up and down in space, moving all around in the sunshine. If the sun doesn't shine in the crack, you can't see the dust although there is a lot of dust everywhere so what it's saying is unless we wake up to our delusions and know that we've been deluded and wake up to the idea that our perceptions and views that we've been clinging to have just been creating more suffering we really can't be enlightened so they're important so i find this very compassionate because what it's saying is you know if i have a view or a perception that is not bringing about oneness causing more separation waking up to that in itself is part of my enlightenment so those those are important you know the dust is there this is just a matter of me being aware of the dust on the mirror like mind and it says here that the dust moves bobbing up and down and then space is still so what you're saying here is is that when we observe the mind from the from the practice of meditation you know all these thoughts and feelings we begin to be able to observe them and we stop reacting to them and that can be very helpful to us whenever we find ourselves caught up in an opinion or a view or a perception that we can sort of step back and we can observe it and see it more clearly and then finally, it just says the ability to see the dust in the light, which is clarity. That pours through the crack. Our suffering represents the attainment of the light of wisdom. So, in summary, when we look at this passage, it's very rich and very full. And what it's trying to help us to see is that if we find ourselves clinging to an opinion, or or a view then we have to sort of ask ourselves why are we clinging to that and and does our view represent the wisdom of the ages or is it some kind of new fad or a new idea that's maybe only been around for a hundred years we want to always measure it against the light of wisdom and when we find that we have been deluded that we have had opinions that maybe we're creating more suffering for us we don't want to get sort of down on ourselves uh, but but generate compassion towards ourselves and realize that making those mistakes was part of the path and furthermore when you see someone offering an opinion or a viewpoint that you totally disagree with or you feel is an unhealthy view or whatever you want to say try to be compassionate towards them too and realize that like you that might not be the last opinion they hold that if they are practicing the way of mindful living and clarity they might come to a different sense of awareness and change their mind we have a hard time today letting people change their mind we think that you have to always have had the same view i feel so bad for young people today who you know grew up in this age where they're always constantly not writing in their yearbook or in their diary but they're putting it up online and you know facebook and and, and twitter and instagram and you know all that stuff and you know some a view that someone might have had 20 years ago <laughs> is now you're they're saying well because you had that view at one time we're going to cancel you now and i just think that so silly at best um lacking in compassion at worst so allow yourself to be just as as flexible allow others to be as flexible as you and uh, whatever you do um don't go around the world throwing your opinions at everybody. And I know that's funny for a preacher, right? Because I'm sharing my opinion with you. But as my one teacher, Bernie Glassman, used to always say, it's just my opinion, man. Hopefully, these are words of liberation.